Hi, everyone, and welcome to Brewing the Tea, a podcast hosted by Zha Zha Lao and Tony Liu, where we sit down with Taiwanese and Taiwanese American entrepreneurs and leaders to tell their stories and inspire the next generation. On this episode, we're so excited to have Pei Lu Tran join us today. Pei Lu is the founder and CEO of Ferrum Health, a next generation AI company that is helping health systems and hospitals prevent costly medical errors across our patient populations. Pei Lu is also the co founder of Augmetics, an AI platform that converts clinician patient conversations into medical documentation for doctors. Which has raised over $80 million in funding from firms like DCM and Emergence. Pelu holds a degree in biomedical engineering from Stanford and also attended Stanford Medical School before leaving to start Augmetics. Today, we'll chat about how a last minute application to Stanford Med completely changed the course of Pelu's career, the number one thing that he thinks Taiwan should help entrepreneurs get better at, what other spaces in healthcare he's excited about, and more. The number one thing that he thinks Taiwan should help entrepreneurs get better at, what other spaces in healthcare he's excited about, and more. Paley, we're so excited to have you here today. Thanks for coming on the show. The first question is just where did you grow up and tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, so um, born in the US, ended up actually spending a couple of years with relatives in Taiwan when I was growing up, actually in the mountains outside of Taipei. To the east, and ended up spending most of my childhood though、uh, here in the U.S. Grew up in Jersey, ended up coming out to Stanford for college and then、uh, med school, and ultimately ended up staying in the Bay Area to start at first my first company out of med school, and then most recently Ferrum Health, which is a company that we're currently working on, trying to build monitoring systems to help hospitals identify and eliminate medical errors. Awesome, man. Curious, at what point did you decide to pursue medicine, and you know what drew you to it? <laughs> the story how I ended up going into medicine is probably different than probably virtually every other Taiwanese American person who ended up going to Stanford Medical School. I was actually an engineer in undergrad. Was thinking I was going to go、um, work in biotech med device and then get an MBA, and I had a mentor of mine. Dr. Cowell actually,、uh, with one of the free clinics here at Stanford, told me, "Hey, you should just take the MCATs, give it a shot. You'll you 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 might always regret what might have been." And convinced me to sign up for the very last spot that was present for MCATs on the entire West Coast the year that I was slated to apply. And so I actually ended up having to drive to Reno, Nevada, as a twenty-year-old to take the MCATs. Because every single other testing site on the entire Western Seaboard was already booked and filled, and so long story short, I ended up taking the MCAT, doing decently well. Decided to submit a last-minute application, and then ultimately ended up getting the Stanford Med with the very last interview slot that they offered. <laughs> all in all, a little bit of a quite a journey. I had to make a last-minute decision on between a couple different things:、uh, business school, med school, and and、um, a couple job offers I had, and just pulled the trigger on Stanford. For no other reason than one, I thought that maybe practicing medicine would be a pretty interesting thing, and two, it was the hardest thing that I had applied to in my life, and I had managed to get in. Obviously, the latter is a terrible reason to go to medical school, but after I arrived at med school, I actually discovered I really liked the practice of medicine and really liked the impact that you can have on patient care, and just decided that wasn't enough for me for my entire career, and that's when I decided to 
return to my engineering roots and start a couple of tech companies. And when you were at Stanford, what were your specific interests that you were pursuing when you were at med school? So did a lot of work in pretty much all of the, the buzzwords you can think of, tissue engineering, genetic engineering, stem cells. You joined a lab that focused on developing tissue engineered kind of stem cell matrices to embed for organ transplants. I had a lot of fun doing that. And then ultimately actually ended up getting involved with, in the Stanford Biodesign course and meeting my co-founder of my first company there back in 2012. And ultimately coming across and convincing some investors to give us a few million dollars of seed funding. And then starting our first company after, shortly after that. So you guys met, you and your co-founder met through this course. And what led to you guys start Augmentics? Like, what was the inspiration? How did you guys come to it? Yeah, honestly, it was really the realization I gained from some time that I spent at the county hospital here in the Bay Area. The county hospital is called Santa Clara Valley. It is the place that the president goes to if they ever end up getting hurt because it's the major trauma center in the area. And like most county hospitals, it's a, a bit of a wild, crazy place. And so not all on top of that, they were transitioning from paper records, which was how patient records used to be kept, to digital electronic health records, EPIC. And so it was in the middle of this transition that I got to spend a couple of months at the Valley and got to basically see how devastating an effect technology has actually been having on the practice of medicine. You know, I had attendings who had been practicing in the community for decades, beloved by their patients, who just decided that was the last straw and decided to take an early retirement. I had residents that I was working with as a medical student who decided to just quit medicine and become a consultant. And I had classmates who, similar to me, realized that being a doctor wasn't what it was to our parents and wasn't what we necessarily thought it was going into it. The average doctor actually spends less time talking to patients than they do uh, on the computer, typing up their notes or dealing with administrative tasks. And so you, you have the kind of art and beauty of being a doctor kind of smothered by this massive amount of administrative burden. And so just decided that Technology played, a, technology played a role in causing that problem and that technology was probably going to be the only way out of it because it's not like we were going to go back to using paper notes. And so, yeah, started Augmetics, my first company, with a focus on essentially building automated documentation solutions for doctors delivered via wearable technologies like uh, Google Glass or tablets or smartphones. I guess before we dive into Augmetics more, curious what the decision was like to drop out of med school. It seems like it wasn't as potentially difficult as it might've been for other people who dropped out, given that you stumbled across it. And then I think in your first couple of years saw all these challenges with the medical system that motivated you in a different way. But I'm sure it was still like somewhat of a challenging decision. Yeah. I still have Asian parents. (laughs) So the conversation with them was it was it was boiling a frog where you know the first year it was just oh there's this interesting side project that i have that i just want to explore a bit further and then the second year it was oh we got this funding and we really ought to we have an obligation to look at it further and the third year was 
oh wow, like it's actually a real company now with real customers. And at that time, all the kind of Forbes, Fast Company, all those different lists that were coming out, they cared a lot about wearables, augmented reality. And so we managed to ride to the top of a lot of those lists and never quite got the MD at that point. And actually my parents cared more about was that I didn't go to Harvard for the MBA either. And they had already told other relatives and friends that I was headed to Harvard. And it was a, a pretty rough, rough conversation to have with them. But ultimately, I think that they understood. They have friends who are physicians as well. And if you talk to any doctor, they really, by and large, would struggle to recommend being a doctor to their, to their kids, unfortunately, these days. So my parents got it, ultimately supported. They do think that I need to go back and finish the degree at some point. And I don't think that'll ever stop us. Yeah, and Stanford's been great also for being very flexible about all of this. Great. When you guys first started Augmentics, you mentioned you guys had fundraised. How did you guys meet your first investor? What was that process like? Yeah. Oh, man, that's a while ago. I feel like going to Stanford is a little bit of a cheat code with regards to starting a company. We were pitching, there are all these different accelerators and angel investors that kind of orbit the Stanford sun. And obviously, Santel is right by us. And so we were actually going through our alumni networks, kind of tapping into connections through the med school and the business school. And um, the investor meeting that actually led to our first check was actually a DCM, which is a fund here uh, on Santel. And the partner meeting that we ended up going to was in the middle of my ICU rotation. So I ended up actually going to see my patients like super early in the morning and taking out my scrubs, switching into business casual, going biking over to the DCM offices on Sand Hill, doing the pitch, and then frantically biking back and hoping that my patients were still stable when I got back. Luckily, as a medical student, they don't actually let you do anything that could risk a patient. There wasn't actually any issues there, but... That was probably one of the more frenetic days of my, my life, actually. But ultimately, ended up in them leading our seed round back in 2012, 2013, and ended up participating in many rounds afterwards. One of the conditions of writing the check, though, of course, was that I would leave medical school and actually run the company full-time. And so that, was, that led to the very first of many conversations with my, my parents and with Sanford Med about deferring and delaying my uh, medical degree, which now it's uh, 2020. I went on leave in 2013, 2012. And so it's going on eight years. I think I'm currently the most tenured medical student at Stanford. I believe the last MD-PhD graduated last year in my class. I'll have to get back to it at some point. That's so funny. I imagine maybe in the next 10 or 20 years, going from medical student to uh, you know founder is a huge jump. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, you probably just had done internships before you know, starting this company in, in terms of the job experience. And then we found this company, which scaled significantly, raised multiple rounds of financing. What were like some of the, what were some of the most unexpected things or most interesting things in that path going from medical student to founder? I think one of the biggest things, and we actually stumbled, and stumbled into this, was that we're taught that the best of the best is Harvard, Stanford, these institutions. And if you can succeed there, you can succeed anywhere. That's very much the kind of prestige seeking that we all get ingrained into us. But actually, when you start a company, 
um, especially when you're starting a company in healthcare, turns out that the type of care that's delivered at a Stanford or a UCSF or a Harvard partners is very different than the type of care that the average person in America receives, not to say the average person internationally. And our first couple of customers and partners were actually community centers, right? It was Dignity Health, Sutter Health here in the Bay Area. And that was actually a strength to investors because they thought that was more similar to what healthcare actually was than what UCSF or Stanford hospitals practiced. That's one of the surprises. There were obviously countless learnings and things that I um, discovered over the course of it. But I remember that was probably one of the things that stuck with me the first couple of years that I still remember to this day. Got it. So you mentioned these community hospitals. Who else were your earlier customers at Augmatics and how did you guys reach them? How did you guys, you know, meet them? Yeah, our very earliest customer, I guess not, not customer, but our very earliest pilot site was actually a doctor by the name of Angus Matheson in a city way up north called Wairika, a solid four plus hour drive from Stanford. And the reason why we ended up piloting there was because I had sent a doximity message. So like doximity is the LinkedIn for doctors. I had sent a doximity message to every single doctor in a 500 mile radius of Stanford. And he was one of the very few that actually ended up answering and saying, yeah, this is pretty cool. No, totally. We'll totally have to try this out. And so I ended up driving up four and a half hours for two, three days and piloting our very first prototypes in his office with his patients. Like any startup, right? Like just you find ways to make it work. You find connections, you find relationships, but speak about doctors who really represent America. That was a, a pretty cool experience. Got it. And today, where is Augmatics at? Like how much money um, has the company raised today? How many people work there, et cetera? Over the course of most of the 2010s, we built up Augmatics to over a thousand employees across a number of countries. We raised over a hundred million dollars and are currently servicing many of the largest hospitals in the country, CHI, Dignity, Sutter, TriHealth, U.S. Oncology, et cetera. And the company continues to, to scale and grow revenues year over year. So the fantastic leadership team, my co-founder is still there leading the strategy. And it's a pretty amazing journey that we were able to have there. And then a couple of years ago, obviously you left Augmetics to start your new company, Ferrum Health. What was that decision like and what was the motivation behind it? Yeah, yeah great question. So I, from the very beginning, I had led product marketing, sales, design, augmetics, and documentation, a telemedicine documentation solution, the technology for the MVP was pretty straightforward. And we, we ended up with a relatively mature product that just worked. And so my focus shifted to sales and marketing. And before, over the course of a couple of years, we ended up bringing a lot of these marquee accounts onto our platform. And the thing with the way Augmetics worked is we would sign an enterprise and then we would spend the next many years scaling and getting more physicians using our product within that enterprise. And around the time when I left, we were operating with a solid 18 to 24 month backlog in sales and a product that was more or less mature. And so you know, was spending more and more time 
helping out with operations, helping out with the other parts of the business. And at some point realized, hey, listen, I'm not, I'm not an operations executive. There are many people out there who would do a better job with managing a complex international operations than I would. And I think our team, we have leading sales marketing product is pretty, pretty self-sufficient. So I've got a bunch of ideas that I want to go pursue and I feel like it's a good time to do. So I spoke with the board, spoke with the co-founder and ultimately took the risk of jumping away from what was a larger and more and more stable ship back into those turbulent waters of early stage uh, startups. Though, of course, it is as, uh, as both of you, it is easier to raise money as a serial entrepreneur than, than it is as a first time, thankfully. But that's what the past two years have been. So what does Ferrum help do and what is the ultimate vision? Yeah, so Ferrum Health really was inspired by some of the challenges that, that we saw universally with the healthcare leaders that we worked with. We developed really close relationships with a lot of the executives at many of the institutions that uh, were our customers, you know, Albert Chan at, at Sutter Health, Rich Roth over at Dignity, Common Spirit now, Edmondo Robinson at, over at Christiana, now Moffitt. In speaking with a lot of them, we heard similar challenges. You know, the first one is just that the technologies out there for patient safety and quality just didn't really exist, right? Like it remained this black box that was serviced by the quality office, which is generally underfunded, struggled to really report on metrics, struggled to have effective tools, and almost in many places end up being this like regulatory reporting function rather than actual function that in healthcare quality kind of matters, it's patient lives. And uh, there was just this, you know, feeling of a lack of focus on that sector. This is combined with a similar level of frustration that they were having, but with the hundreds and hundreds of digital health companies, in particular, the 800 plus AI companies in healthcare that were constantly banging on the doors, asking to run pilots for their algorithm for right pinky fractures or their system to identify like eyebrow, eyebrow strokes. And so there's this frustration with all this technology out there that just they couldn't envision using combined with this complete lack of technology in the sector that was probably the most important in their system. And so we realized that actually, rather than trying to replace the doctor and disrupt healthcare and do also like, why don't we take these same algorithms, these kind of machine vision, natural language, these predictive analytics, machine learning models, which have become incredibly powerful over the past couple of years. And why don't we leverage them to try to solve some of these chronic issues in population health, in patient safety and quality, in the care gaps. A lot of folks don't realize it, but medical errors and gaps in care, they're actually the third leading cause of death in the world. The only things that kill more people than medical errors are cancer and heart disease. And other reports show that, you know, medical errors are underreported by a factor of five to seven. <laughs> this condition, this, situ this problem that is underreported by five to seven fold is already still the third leading cause of death in the world. And so we're like, okay, this is just getting ridiculous. And you look at every other industry that has to be high safety, nuclear power, aerospace, cybersecurity, financial services, and you realize that they all solve safety in the same way, which is by building intelligent monitoring systems to try to identify when anomalies or discrepancies occur. They don't solve it by trying to make every single end user perfect, which is the attitude in healthcare. And so we connected all those dots. We decided to build 
at a high level, an AI-powered monitoring system that automatically identifies medical errors across the population. And we actually launched it in a number of markets, the first of which was Taiwan. Great. On that note, it's a Taipei Veterans Hospital, one of the biggest hospitals in, in Taipei. For those that don't know, was one of Farron's earliest customers. So tell us about how you got introduced to them and what the process of getting the partnership and, and running was like with Taipei Veterans. Yeah, I, I actually owe it to, to the actual very first hospital that we worked with, Far Eastern Medical in Taipei. That was actually the very first partner that we have, and we're still live with them now. But I think one thing that we don't necessarily realize coming from the U.S. is like people in hospitals really look to the U.S. to be leaders in innovation. It, it can be difficult to be aware of that when you go internationally and you talk about, hey, listen, like this is what we're doing in the U.S. They just take your word for it. And I don't mean that in a negative way. <laughs> like they, they really, they look to their friends, their colleagues who you know, are at these institutions in the U.S., are at these kind of centers of innovation to really tell them what is on the bleeding edge. And they'll make their own assessment of the value that those technologies have in their unique environment. But it was remarkably open and remarkably willing to have a conversation around what it would look like. So you got introduced to heavy veterans through Far Eastern. And how long did it take for them to test it and get it actually running on a few patient populations? Like, how did it all work? Yeah, so I, I was actually introduced to the centers actually because I was doing some uh, volunteer work, serving as a mentor for some of the accelerators in the area, H Spectrum, Garage Plus. There are a number of them out of tai Taiwan and a number of them out of Singapore as well. And I was basically just going there and giving free advice to some of the med device and digital health startups and kind of students there. And through that, I had a chance to get introduced to a number of these kind of leading hospital executives. One of the benefits of Asia and Asian healthcare is that it is very hierarchical. And so if leadership says we're doing this, you don't really have the kind of committees on committees that you have here in the US, right? There's let's try it out. And the reports are like, sounds good versus let's submit it to procurement committee 37B, which their next meeting is 2022, none of that. And so we were able to launch it very quickly in, in Taiwan and actually in Singapore because of that dynamic. Has this insight changed the way you approach new markets? Are you going to devote you know, more resources to Asia now and pull back on the U.S.? Or has it not changed it at all? It's changed it. I think that, our, and this is just healthcare, but our, I think the insight that we have is, is places in Asia are, you know, generally these are much smaller markets. So it's never something that you want to be investing a ton of money in. But if you're looking for initial pilots, proof of concepts, sites to launch in, the world's getting flat. And with healthcare, with at least the solutions in, that we're trying to build around patient safety, they're universally ap applicable. And so we launched a number of pilots in a number of Asian countries. Actually, we added very shortly after that, we added the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, all of which were pilot sites for technology, and then have been running those since we started the company. The challenge I would say is that like, when you're trying to get reimbursed and paid, healthcare is very local. And so generally the conversations to actually get revenue from those insights is going to take a bit longer and we usually involve government discussions, hospital contracting, et cetera. Definitely in terms of kind of the like growth hacking to get the first MVP, get user feedback, et cetera. I definitely appreciated having the Asian partners that we had, 
monetization. I think VCs still recognize that the U.S. has extraordinarily expensive healthcare. If you're a startup selling into that is a pro, not a con, unlike when you put your patient hat on. And revenues, we're still looking at the U.S. as a primary market. Um, we are building a number of longer-term relationships with Asian healthcare ministries and insurance schemes. And hopefully those two will yield value. But I do think that's a luxury to be able to do because if you want to be raising series B, series C or series A funding, you've got to get the revenues that frankly, the U.S. is the best suited um, to provide. Makes sense. It's definitely clever to make use of that, the, the Taiwanese market, the Asian market to test product while understanding the dynamics for selling into the U.S. market. I guess switching gears a little bit, this is your second time starting a company. How does the first couple of years of Ferrum Health compare with the early days of Augmetics? Is it, you've done this twice now, is it much easier this time around or is it as difficult as it was the first time around? I, I would say it's definitely fun in a different way than it was the first time. Starting off Augmetics, we were like blazing off into the unknown. And like learning as we went and making mistakes and doing all that stuff. And I think with Ferrum, because we had learned all these lessons from the first time around, Ferrum was a lot more intentional company. We knew exactly what we needed to do to raise a C fund. We knew exactly how to do it. And so it really became thinking about, wait, like we have all the blocking tackling down. How do we come up with these kind of clever growth hacks and clever approaches to try to get traction and adoption that beyond what we would do just through day-to-day -day execution. And so the challenges of just getting that MVP built, right? Bringing on your first hires, that was all pretty comfortable, but then it's okay. We're also trying to tackle a much more difficult problem rather than trying to tackle documentation and, you know, paperwork automation. We're trying to tackle one of the third rails of medicine, which is the fact that doctors make mistakes. <laughs> And generally that when doctors make mistakes, people die and therefore no one really talk about that. So the average patient, for example, has no clue that medical errors are this massive problem. The average doctor really doesn't like bringing it up. And we're here saying, not only are we going to bring it up, we're going to actually expose all that for you. And it's for the purpose of fixing it. And it's for the purpose, purpose of helping patients. So we're solving a problem people don't realize they have, that patients don't realize they have, that providers don't necessarily want to acknowledge. And we're needing to find a way to convince all of them. And so that's been the fun of it because at the end of the day, as intimidating as impossible as it sounds, most people enter healthcare for the right reasons. And so we have been able to build a really fantastic group of champions and find some really clever ways to gain traction and, and scale and, and get commercial success. So I think that having started a company before opens you up to do more creative things and opens you up to try more dangerous and riskier approaches that can potentially, you know, have outsized dividends. For example, launching your first sites uh, across the Pacific Ocean in a couple different tiny Asian countries. Earlier, you mentioned you're involved in a few accelerators and incubators in Taiwan and Singapore. How did you, you know, first get connected with them? What has the experience been like so far? Yeah, so I, I first got connected with them by actually just volunteering some time and mentoring their company portfolio companies and their students. So I was giving a bunch of talks, getting connected with a bunch of early stage founders in countries that 
do not necessarily glorify early stage founders the same way we do here in the US. And I was really just giving free advice. And I kind of built up a network, got introduced to a couple of different accelerators, a couple of different hospitals that were looking at AI. And in the course of that relationship, I had a couple of folks who were like, actually, we really would like to try this technology you have. And I'm a big believer in this concept of always giving something to your prospects and customers, whether it's you're launching an email campaign and just making sure you send them some interesting articles or whether you're actually engaging them and trying to get them to buy stuff, but always trying to give them something that they find valuable because that's why they're buying your technology from you is because they think that your technology will add value as well. Took the same approach and in Asia, right? It was random. The Stanford med, Stanford engineer who had started a company and knew all the hot things happening in Silicon Valley coming over and talking about AI and all the innovations at Google and Amazon and all this stuff. Like that ended up meaning a lot and you know, get, getting me connections into some pretty cool places. I actually went on a tour, I guess it's not the Capitol Hill, but it's the tour of the executive Yuan. We got to hang out with the vice president and spend some time um, talking to him about healthcare innovation and US Taiwan kind of trade. And that was, you know, I was like the youngest one there by several decades and just happened to have built that relationship. So I think there's definitely a need for more of that. I, I was surprised at how rare it was. That's pretty cool. Is he, was he, is he the famous one? The one that yeah, the just... NIH epidemiologist. The, yeah. yeah, the one that just left, right? Yeah, that's pretty awesome. What countries are, are you guys in? So the first two countries that we launched in were Singapore and Taiwan. Like I mentioned before, we expanded from there to the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand. And then about a year ago, actually launched in the U.S. market for the first time. One of the crazy things is actually how universal the problem we solve is. So we've had similar results around medical errors and gaps in care in the Taiwanese system, the Singaporean system, this Australian system, the U.S. system. And so that's been pretty cool to see over the past couple of years. I will say there are some big differences between, you know, some of these Asian markets, Taiwan, Singapore, and the U.S. The greatest example of that would be the fact that the U.S. spends somewhere between $100,000 and $300,000 per cancer patient, and Taiwan spends around 6000 <laughs> So there's this half an order, there's a five-fold, tenfold reduction in cost of cancer care if you get it in Taiwan. And the shocker is outcomes are better in Taiwan. So they spend like a seventh of what we do in the US and their patients actually do better. So going into that environment where yes, they look to the US for innovation in healthcare technology, but that means a very different thing than actual innovation in healthcare delivery. I think by and large, um, most international markets understand and separate that out. I was pretty shocked with that. I thought it'd be like, I don't know, 2X or something. Not that big of a delta. I actually had a meeting with NHIA, so Taiwan's National Health Insurance Agency, and they were basically presenting the metrics around their system and around their results. And I was looking at them, I was like, are those US dollars, those Taiwan dollars? I, like, I, I was struggling to figure out which currency they were talking in. And uh, yeah, so they made a very clear point that everyone who visits from America is always surprised at the numbers. And they were very proud of that. All sorts of healthcare delivery. And for them, they think the U.S. has this kind of research and technology innovator. And they're very selective and very thoughtful about how they apply those technologies to their patients. Same thing in Singapore. And same thing in a lot of these countries that, that have, have um, these really strong high-performing health systems. 
The other commonality is they all think that they're not doing well, right? Taiwan thinks that Singapore has connected hospitals and is leading the way in AI. And Singapore thinks that Australia is funding more basic research. And so everybody actually thinks that every other country is somehow doing something that they're missing. It turns out just no one knows anything about anything and we're all just grasping in the dark, which was, I guess, the other lesson that I learned that I guess I'll share is nobody actually knows what's going on. And you learn that once you go and take this international perspective. It's on a related note, you obviously stay very close to entrepreneurial communities in the medical space. What are, aside from Ferrum, what are some of the most interesting opportunities in, in the space? Uh, of course, there are, uh, there are a couple that come to mind. Are you going to ask me for introductions to the founders afterwards? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I, I think that, I guess I'll talk about sectors and, and trends. We're a big believer in the fact that the future of AI and healthcare is going to look more like marketplaces and ecosystems and platforms. It's not going to look like, oh, thank God, Stanford made the right bet and like partnered with Google because Google won AI in healthcare. It's going to look a lot more like the App Store, a lot less like Facebook. And so we, like, I, I think the most exciting thing I'm seeing is you have this kind of explosion of AI companies out there, which frankly, like, they're running a lot leaner than the AI companies of yore, right? You have the historical approach was, let me go out and raise a $7 million convertible note that'll call a seed round. I'll go hire a bunch of super expensive data scientists out of Google and Stanford and we'll make some like fundamental breakthrough in AI and leverage that into some market. And it's at a point where like actually pretty much any grad student with an uncle who is the CIO of some hospital somewhere and an AWS credit can build best-in-class algorithms. So I think what's exciting is thinking about the infrastructure layer of AI in healthcare and some of the really challenging problems that it poses. So the broad category of model operations is something that I'm super excited about. Obviously, I'm biased since that's a big part of where our company plays, where we're very focused on model operations. The algorithms that we deploy in these hospitals aren't our own. They're our partners. And what we care about is how do you actually get an AI algorithm from some company sitting in France, one of our partners called Gleamer, which does best in class fracture detection. How do you get their algorithm integrated into a kind of consistent platform, integrated into a business case and use case that actually makes sense to hospitals and then deployed over you know, the edge into a hospital data center in New Zealand? And how do you maintain, update, monitor, retrain, and measure performance of the algorithm and the other 30, 40, 50 algorithms that you're gonna end up deploying. And so there are a number of companies in the space. They're, they're all atta attacking different areas of the problem. And I think that's gonna actually be where the most exciting companies in healthcare and more broadly in AI actually end up being, right? The whole selling picks and shovels approach to the AI companies and to the health systems. Other areas, I think there's this big focus in around telemedicine with COVID and everyone's pretending like they just discovered the Zoom of healthcare. The reality is telemedicine is a, is a one game, right? The telemedicine providers have been at it forever. You're not gonna wake up tomorrow and start a telemedicine company, but it really is, you think about these service providers that are providing these additional tools because telemedicine is fundamentally limited. You think about what are the sensors, what are the kind of internet of things of a telemedicine visit? 
that would need to happen for telemedicine to really be able to get to the next level. And you're like, oh, you would need like dermatology scopes and, you know, psychiatry like applications. And you basically, in order for a telemedicine provider to be effective, they need a whole suite of applications. And companies like Zelf up in Seattle out of Providence that are building these kind of patient tools, I think for patient provider collaboration and assessment. So I think that's actually going to be where you see a ton of value because if a psychiatrist needs to see a patient remotely, they're going to need a whole set of tools above and beyond just a video chat to be able to see those patients. And so I think there's a whole burgeoning category in every specialty of these applications where you're just going to see a ton of adoption very rapidly as care moves uh, remote and digital. If you can do it through telemedicine, like now is the time to invest in those companies because now is when they're going to be able to get that outsized, very aggressive, very rapid traction. Is it as if they're, they are the tool that enables a dermatologist to see 60% of their patients remotely instead of 30%. Last question. What are some of the good resources you have in mind for Taiwanese entrepreneurs? What do you think the government could do to improve on providing resources for budding entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think that the shockingly universal thing about Taiwanese entrepreneurs is they're terrible at marketing. It's like universally across the board, full stop. They'll build like this, like incredibly sleek, sexy technology because like they can do this. They'll build some like uh, a heart rate monitor that looks like Steve Jobs, like came out of his grave and came up with it. But then they'll put it in mediocre packaging. They'll have some like company name that looks like it was made in 1990. And they'll have like terrible stock photography. And they're like, wow, like you just took something that frankly should be like, the next big thing and you've made it look like a ShamWow commercial. And so there just needs to be either connection of Taiwanese entrepreneurs with marketing resources in places like the US or Singapore or other places that know how to do it, or there just needs to be basic marketing and design education for, for Taiwan. And maybe, and to some degree, I think it's folks just aren't aware that it's important. I know like, like people in Taiwan typically care a lot more about function and specs than they do about branding and marketing. But I think that's probably the biggest disconnect that I see between Taiwanese entrepreneurs and the technology, which is usually pretty close to world-class, and then their attempts at commercializing, which is usually, they usually try and then go to a distributor that, you know, is able to do that last, not even the last mile, the last like five inches of effort and then deploy it. So I think that's a huge area of kind of weakness. Obviously, could always be investing more in English education, could always be investing more in uh, a lot of these programs like uh, Stanford Taiwan Biodesign or a lot of these kind of like scholar programs. It, it, that's actually where I met most of the Taiwanese people that I, I worked with and, and got connected to. And so those are all programs that I think are pretty effective and could definitely have more money spent in an effective way. Yeah, I totally agree that the marketing needs to be better i feel like then actually it's not just like entrepreneurs i do feel like the entire country in general is bad at marketing <laughs> my hot take is that this is one of the reasons why we have the country just hasn't been able to deploy soft power in the way that like korea for example has been able to do because koreans are very good at marketing for some reason and anyways I they just need that. to make like jay chow like chief marketing officer of taiwan for a couple of years and see what happens yeah. For some reason, there, there there's too much of focus on let's just make it like a product that has like a lot of utility and just that's good enough. But 
that's something just I think the entire country needs to work on in general. And I guess since we didn't address this earlier, maybe talk a little bit about your dual heritage and the last name. Oh, yeah. So my, my dad's Vietnamese, my mom's Taiwanese. My first name is actually a transliteration of my Chinese name and my last name is my Vietnamese name. They split the difference. My mom wanted me to learn Taiwanese to speak with my grandpa. My dad wanted me to learn Vietnamese to speak with my grandma. And as a compromise, they had me learn Mandarin, which one, is actually useful. And two, meant that I could speak with neither my grandpa or my grandma on either side. That's how compromises work. That's pretty funny. And I think like we just went through all the questions. So we can jump into the more fun ones. Do you have a favorite tea? Yeah, so we um, actually have a bag of it right here. My family in Taiwan, we have this one friend that actually owns a tea plantation in Alisan. And so we get tens and tens and tens of bags of Alisan, Gaosan, Oolong that we then bring back and just preciously use over the years. So we have our own tea plantation that we, we work with directly sourced. Fancy. So it got to be that one, I would say. Nice, nice. How about favorite Taiwanese food? Oh, I think actually it's going to end up being um, one of the oyster ones. So probably Oamiswa or Oajian, just because of all the, it's just, it's so far, growing up in New Jersey, it's just the flavor profile that's so exotic. Oysters weren't really a thing growing up in New Jersey, New York, because the water was toxic uh, back then. And cooked oysters especially is definitely this kind of Taiwanese night market type of flavor that I always associate with it. I'll, I'll have a fried oyster in some like restaurant, some like Italian restaurant here in SF and I'll be like, oh, it reminds me of Taiwan. So that category is probably something that I have the most emotional connection with. Nice. It's great. I remember being startled when I had a fried oyster dish in Taiwan once and it was like a chain of six to eight oysters and it was like a, a you know, banquet type dinner. And it was, it was very surprising to sit there, but I totally agree. I think Taiwanese use of oysters and cooking is, is pretty unique. And last question, favorite thing to do in Taiwan? Obviously the main one is spending time with relatives and family and things like that. But I guess in terms of kind of that, the non like personal related ones, always had a soft spot in my heart for Beito and the hot springs there. Especially as my like parents and relatives get older, they like increasingly going there and just chilling for a day. And I wish we had something like that in, in San Francisco. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I really, really enjoyed it. And yeah, I think this will be a pretty fun episode. Sounds good. Great meeting right. the two of you on this as well.